0: Because I've just seen that you describe Watford's former chairman as exemplary. Do I? That's good news. Yeah, it says in the book. Oh, well, fair
1: enough. It must, must be true. Did I say that? I don't know. Half a half a Have no idea what I've
0: said. That's the I great can't thing about. That last week. That's the great thing about journalism and broadcasting. It, it comes and goes. That's why I like saying I'm a jour- I'm a songwriter, but I'm also a journalist and a broadcaster. But my right. dream my dream job would be yours. So this is. This is a, a very... Well, it wouldn't, it, it wouldn't have been your dream
1: job if you'd been doing Fulham against uh, Middlesbrough last week because I ended up doing two reports on the bus. They chucked us out. They still ch- chuck us out 90 minutes after the final whistle, or the stewards do, because essentially they're only employed for certain time. So basically you go home when they go home. And I had three reports to write and I'd only sent one. I had five more minutes to finish the Times one. No, they wouldn't give me five minutes. So The Times and, what else was it, The Mirror, I think, ended up doing on the 74
0: bus to Baker Street from Fulham Palace Road. It has its ups and downs, that's for sure. God, it's different from when Glanville used to phone up and dictate 800 words to the copy takers.
1: Yeah, or well, sometimes his, uh, more towards the end, his uh, his grandson used to, used to type it, actually. He'd have his, his grandson would come along to Loftus Road and Craven Cottage and... Um, he kind of dictated to him, and then he'd he'd use the miracles of the laptop to, to send it. I don't
0: think Brian ever owned a laptop. Well, why would you? You're, you're not if you are the man who invented, as I say, Brian Glanville invented English language football criticism. Uh, why would you need to press to digitate your words? Sorry, that's a bit rusty, Brian. Well, <laughs> press to digitation isn't
1: for everybody. There was, there was a guy who used to work for the Mail. And they insisted that he have a laptop. And he just, you could tell he didn't like it. He like—he essentially made it up as so he went along half the time. I'm sure he just extemporised down the phone. And the actual discipline of having to write a match report, you know, before he, he started sending, it was too much for him. I
0: think he deliberately broke his laptop <laughs> just so that he, he wouldn't be, yeah. I won't name him, but uh, he worked for the mail. So. All right. Well, we could... A dozen still. Oh, ah, okay. So that's a clue. So I, would...
1: I, might, I might be going back. I might be going back to days when Portsmouth were in the Premier League, so that tells you how long ago it was. Still uh, only, that's only a decade,
0: isn't it? It is wonderful to speak to you, Nick Shepanik, Uh which is a name that I can pronounce because I've heard Gab Marcotti say it many times because uh, I was one of the people who would listen to the game podcast before podcasting became au fait and normal. Um, so it's wonderful yeah. to have you. Where do I find you? Are you in Brighton?
1: Yeah, I'm in... Uh... Yeah, in in my my wife's study, actually, because I'd be using the living room normally, but um, the the, the guy across the road, is I think he's trying to bid for a place on grand designs. They've they've rebuilt their house so many times, and I don't know what's going on out in their front garden today, but it involves angle grinders and lots of noise. So, in a a peaceful sanctuary.
0: I had a friend from university who was from Hove, actually. I've been to Brighton, and I've Mm. been to Hove. And indeed, as this goes out... On the 20th of August, on the 21st, Watford will be going to... Is it Brighton or Hove? Where's the Amex? It's in Brighton.
1: It it. It's, it's just about in Brighton. It's almost in uh, in Lewis district, yes. um, which was a source of uh, difficulty when it came to getting uh, planning. And it, it involved a number of Brighton fans standing as uh, councillors in uh, in Lewis council elections to try to... Uh, to sway opinion, but um, it all turned out well, well in the end. So it's, uh, it's opposite the uh, the Falmer campus of the University of Sussex, just across the road from that. Quite right. And uh, joining the Falmer campus of the University of Brighton.
0: 2012, I went down to meet Paul Camelin, and I said, I've got a book. It's about football, but it's about nothing. And he politely told me to go away, because I wanted to do a kind of the soul of football, the meaning of football, what is football. And then I turned that into a book called A Modern Guide to Modern Football, which looked at 11 different things... 11 questions like, what do we replace the transfer window with? If you had to pick a team from pre-Bosman era, who would you leave out? Uh, And my new book, which is out next year, From Kids to Champions, will be published on Pitch, which means it will join the likes of Pulp Football, Nick Schrapanek's amazing anthology of real football stories you simply couldn't make up, uh, which was published by Pitch in 2016. Um... Yeah, before we get lost in the weeds of football, yeah. thank you for writing this book. This must have been enormous fun to put together.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, It, I, I took, it took some persuading to do it, actually, because it, it essentially arose out of me telling Paul a couple of stories, just, you know, uh, casually. And he sort of got the idea that I must have a, a wealth of these stories after a number of years in the football writing business. And wouldn't they make a great book? And I said to him, no, no, they really wouldn't. You know, there's so many books of hilarious football anecdotes and stories you know the the, the market is saturated with them; it'll never sell um but he kept on at me and on at me and on, at me and on. i had a sort i had a, a blank summer i'm trying to think what that particular reason so that would have been 2015 wouldn't it so i made a, a foolish mistake i decided to to see what the market was like and picked up a couple of these books just to see just to prove my point that there were too many of them. And um, I opened one, and it was written by a fairly well-known name in the, in the football books business. And the first thing I, I read I knew was wrong. Um, it was a description of a hilarious goal. And I, I remembered the goal quite clearly and know the description was completely inaccurate. You know, it was an attempt to make something that happened funnier than it was. It was actually quite funny as by itself. But um, you know the, the person is exaggerating. I just thought, well, I suppose there could be a, a place for a book that actually just tells the truth and lets these stories stand by themselves without. And actually, the, the goal that was mentioned is in-pulp football, correctly described, because I even went back to the uh, the YouTube clip to make sure I got it right. So I suppose in the you know I fight for truth. So everything in. Nepal football, I'm pretty sure, you know, as, as sure as you could be, uh, you know, is researched and, and is correct and actually did happen.
0: Strange but true. And this is underneath a picture of Kieran Dyer and Lee Bowyer being sent off for fighting. Uh, Robbie Fowler snorting the touchline is there. Is that big Malcolm Allison in a coat on the back?
1: Oh, but it's Fedora. Yeah. yeah that probably yes yeah that the, the Malcolm Allison fedora uh although a Brighton fan I have a sort of strange fascination with Crystal Palace you know as the um the ying to our yang and uh I was uh, you know, because uh, in the old days before Crawley Town were in the league they were the closest other club to Brighton so occasionally you know if I was a loose end um, uh, you know before I became a football writer I might go and see Palace and uh uh, you know, the, in the old days before before we were officially rivals, you know, there was some funny things happened. You know, and yes. it was a it was a sort of oddball place. You know, where it's it's still kind of hard to, to take Crystal Palace seriously as the sort of proper football club when you've seen them you know, sort of staggering from one disaster to another, but. Uh, I couldn't resist that that joke about you know when the the Jules Rimet Trophy got lost and was found in Norwood. And I had to write you know still the closest to any major trophy has ever been to Sellers Park. Zing. But But um, presented with an open goal, you know you've, you've just got to tap it over the line, haven't you? Really? No, Malcolm Allison was it was a figure of fun. I, uh, you know, some people say he was the, the saviour of Crystal Palace and the uh, and the sort of architect of the modern club because he he changed their kit to the red and blue stripes and then and the, introduced the Eagles. Nickname, but I like to think that, that when he took over, it was where things started to go wrong for them. Because, I mean, when he took, took them over, they were, in the, they were in the old first division. And he managed to get them relegated at the end of his first season. So, you know, I don't know how that equates to, to being a saviour. But I suppose he brought Terry Venables into the, into the club. And, yeah, it was the start of the modern Crystal Palace. But whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is, is for them to decide. Well,
0: I will I'll make a note of that because my book on the Youth Cup... It unearths my great fact, which I want people to know, which is that between 1961 and 2000, only one team regained the FA Youth Cup. And that was this great team, as you note of, what is it, Vance Hilaire? Uh,
1: Jerry Murphy, those players, uh, Peter Nicholas. Yes. Kenny
0: Sansom. So, and I I know there's a bit written about that, but I've got to condense 70 years of Youth Cup history into about 85,000 words. The difficult, And you've written books because you have condensed two seasons of Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club into your second book, Brighton Up, good title, oh. uh, which came out on Bite Back. Odd that it wasn't on pitch, which is uh, run by two Brighton supporters. You're welcome to comment on that, or just not.
1: Uh, well, no, they, I think they feel that they don't want conflicts of interest, so okay. they won't do Brighton books. I'm trying to persuade them to do um, well, they wouldn't have needed persuading. I was trying to persuade a, a former Brighton manager to do a book, and they would have been interested in publishing that because he, it wasn't just about Brighton. But I think, um, you no, know, I think it speaks well for them that they don't want to to have that conflict of That's, interest. Yeah, but, that
0: but, is interesting because
1: but I respect... they, were, they were helpful in, in in sort of pointing me towards Whiteback, and um, Whiteback well, was an interesting experience.
0: Yeah. Uh, Spencer Vine wrote his book, Bloody Southerners, which is about the Peter Taylor and Brackett's Brian Clough era, which I knew nothing about. I knew about the interregnum period of playing at the, with Dean and then going to Priestfield and mucking around because of the, the politics of that club. But I went to the Amex in 2012. I've been inside it. In, was it the end of 2018? Watford lost 1-0 to Brighton. And this was a Chris Hughton side, who then the goal was to stay in the division. But I do remember when Brighton was either bottom or second bottom. This was the Hammy Hammy Suppier, the Sammy Hupia experiment, which you start the book with because that was 2015. That gamble didn't work. Everything else Tony Bloom has done since then has worked.
1: Hupia walks. Bloom didn't sack him, oh, as okay. I think he would have stayed loyal. To, I think he would have stayed loyal to his manager. It takes a lot for him to. to to want to sack a manager. But I think the problem, a lot of players have said that Hippie's ideas were good, but he just didn't have the personnel to make them work. You know, he wanted very advanced full-backs, and if he'd had Solly March and Tarek Lamptey, you know, that would have been fine. But he he was playing with people who were, you know, perhaps didn't have the pace to to get up and get back. And uh, No, so I I don't think many of the players would regard him as intrinsically, intrinsically a bad manager. I just think that he was the the wrong manager for the particular squad he'd inherited at the time. So
0: Yeah, and he stayed in management, Herpia. I can't remember where he's gone. Part of me thinks Spain, but it's not.
1: Yeah.
0: I'll have to well, look it, up.
1: it was a, well, there were a few alarm bells when he signed because people um, noticed that, that he when he had his first job in Germany, he hadn't actually had the title of manager because he didn't have the right um, badges. coaching badges. And so the, a youth team manager took the... To the press conferences and did a lot of the stuff. But when he was fully qualified, this guy sort of dropped into the background. And at that point, the results began to tail off as well. So a lot of people wondered whether his early successes were purely down to him or whether this other guy had had some input. But um, I think Sammy was uh, was a, a nearly nearly but not quite type of guy. Um, you know, the, with the investment that had been made in, in the team and the ground, I don't think they could have afforded to relegation back to, the, to League One. So uh, Sammy walked the plank. Um, and then Chris Houghton came in, and the rest was uh, rest is legend. Yeah, I mean the times when they were selling the Goldstone and, and bottom of the league, and looking at going into non-league and having to play. Well, the first Portsmouth was the first ground they talked about. Uh, they tried to get Millwall, but the uh, the Metropolitan Police wouldn't have another another team playing at the Den. And uh, and Chillingham it was, and um, not a time that people look back on with any fondness.
0: So yes, I went to. The Amex, and I saw all the big banners of Bobby Zamora and Mark Lawrenson. But the interesting thing I picked up was the Brighton FC Historical Society had put together a little booklet about what had gone on. And it was all politics. It's not football. So in the years when Brighton were at the basement level, after the great FA Cup triumph, almost triumph, I should say, although getting to a final was a triumph in itself.
1: In those days, in those days, yeah.
0: Yes. Were you there at that Smith must score? I
1: was, yes. I was at the opposite end. Didn't look as bad a miss, um, you know, from the, the from the tunnel end as it as it did from, from the television. But, um, but uh, the thing is that that team, never got relegated, and they took their eyes off off the league, you know, and just thought about the cup games. It was it's pretty evident. So um, uh, a top division place was pretty much thrown away in pursuit of the cup final. But there you go, you know. we always have Wembley
0: up, yes, Watford in eighty four. Up until the last ten years of Pozzo's. we did have Wembley, and the man you say is um, an exemplary chairman who was also there. Did you come across Elton as a journalist? No, been to
1: Watford as a journalist until until he's actually sort of eased back uh, on the reins, so to speak, uh, and therefore it's, it's very rare to meet. You know, even celebrity chairman unless they're the sort of people who like to come into the press room to um, court a bit of publicity. There are some chairmen, on the other hand, who are, who are welcoming or, or sometimes are more the face of their club than any of their players or, or managers. I remember doing a League Cup tie with Late Orient and um, Barry Hearn Not was certainly, certainly much better known than any, any of his, uh, his staff or players, but he was happy to talk about. So I think they, they, they had Tottenham in the following round, so he was, he was looking forward to that. Um, David Sheepchanks when he was at Ipswich, um, especially after European nights, would always sort of welcome the, the media into the boardroom afterwards for a snifter or, or whatever it was your... I, I had a two-hour drive home from Portman Road, so I, I didn't. But, um, you know, on, on European trips with, uh, with Ipswich, of which there were a few, you know, that, that they would always uh, would be a sort of gathering in the, in the town square of wherever Ipswich were playing. And, uh, no, they, they, they were, they were, there were some... But I didn't uh, have the pleasure of meeting
0: Elton, unfortunately. Yeah. The Brighton experiment, there are two chairmen who are astonishing in the top division. Uh, Tony Bloom and Matt Benham. Do you think we'll see more professional gambler chairman, if that isn't an oxymoron?
1: Um, I've always said that I don't think what Tony Bloom is involved in is technically gambling. I think it's betting. Uh-huh. Um, I think he takes as much of the gamble out of it. as So possible. it's a bit
0: more like Stoke and the Bet Three Six Five, the coats
1: Well, no, it's not that. I, I just think that he's, his attitude to gamble, to well, to betting, is to make it as little of a gamble on his side as possible. Um, you know, he's he's a very very shrewd guy. Um, you know, a, a, a very fine mathematician. Um, it's all. Statistics, but he's taking as much of the gamble out of it as possible. You know, his, his style is an operation. They know as much as it's possible for anyone not actually employed by a club to know about. Um, you know, which players might be a little bit more injured than than their people are saying, and, and you know what's going on behind the scenes. So, any any edge, any knowledge he can get, um, that he will make sure they get. So, uh, and you know, their statistically driven uh, understanding of the. Of, Really going on in betting markets is, uh, is is you know an education. I mean, I know some people um, in in the sports betting world, uh, and they're almost united in their admiration for for what goes on in that, those offices in Camden. Um, the, and the, it, it, there's a lot of secrecy about it. You know, people are. Though in the end Neil Mope came from Brentford, so that's obviously not true. No, there's a, there's a professional rivalry there, um, but uh, they say so they're on they're on the the, the sat's end of it, not the sort of business end, not the not the Stoke end.
0: And if you're running a football club as you are now, there is a chapter in Pulp Football all about the chairman, the big chair. Wow. Uh, which seems to just um, go over a lot of what David Conn has written. Not go over, but bring up the same lovely characters, like the lovely George Reynolds and the equally lovely um, Sasha Guidermack. So all these figures in football who were not fit and proper—they're not good directors and ownership. I mean,
1: Sasha Guidamak was never the Portsmouth owner or chairman. It was his dad, the gun runner. But um, yeah, uh, even when we, even when the times had. Actual proof in an Israeli paper. You know the Portsmouth press officer tried to deny it to my face, and I said, "Look, here is a copy of uh, this this paper. You know that we've had photocopied sent over. You know from from uh, Tel Aviv this morning. Look, here is uh, the Arkady guy to that claimed that he, he owns Portsmouth, or admitting that he owns Portsmouth. And this his was a front. But then, you know, they, they got that particular con past the Premier League's proper persons test and. Then there was um, Ali Al miraj as they called him. Yes. You know, the, the owner who never actually appeared at the ground and may not even have existed. You know, he was he was a passport, not a human being. You know, these these are you know the really bad ones. But you know, a good chairman, uh, you know, is is a blessing for any any football club. Well, supporter at, to, to
0: have at my club he's a good chairman one week and a, a sack the chairman another this is well the chairman is Scott Duxbury and the owner is Gino oh. Cotto but Scott is Gino's yeah. representative on earth and the club seems to lurch from one opportunity to the crisis I've been saying for the last few weeks Shishko Munoz that was his first game at the top tier of a, of a professional division in England He's got a 100% record as we speak. Obviously, it'll be ruined at the Amex because Brighton have this manager. I think he'll manage England someday. I don't know what Graham Potter's ambition is, but I knew about him at Team Bath. I saw what he was doing at Ostersund. Um, and apparently it's the chairman, not him, who wanted to make it all artsy and, and stuff. Uh, and he was um, sold, Pro- possibly because the budget for players would be bigger. But Watford have got Ken Semmer. Who played under Potter at Ostersund? Uh, and Semmer will start against Brighton and hopefully terrorise uh, Dunk and Webster. Is it Dunk, Webster, and there's one more because you play three at the back now?
1: Well, it'll, it'll be Veltman if he's free from Covid restrictions. Might be. Uh, well, well, we'll see about that. We'll see about what sort of protection we give them from, uh, from the left side. Might be, it might be Soy March. It was Pascal Gross with. I mean, the, the team that Potter played on. Uh, on on Saturday at Burnley, the starting 11, was utterly weird. But I'd spoken to, um, to a couple of Swedish journalists uh, who, who followed Ostersunds, and they said, you know, don't don't think you know what to expect week to week. He, he might drop the guy who was man of the match for the following ma- game. You know, he might suddenly go four at the back when he's played three at the back all season. And, you know, he'll pick a team that he thinks is right for the opposition. And, uh, yeah, we've we've learned... To, Look at the the names on the team sheets and think about where you know where they might all fit in. But then, you know, not to waste too much time on that because by the time they line up, you know, he'll, uh, well as I say, he, he had uh, you know a right-sided midfield player playing left back. Well, I know when when Swansea played Manchester City, uh, he knew that Manchester City weren't going to pose any aerial threat, so he dropped his tallest centre half and played a, a midfield player in the middle of a back three. He's not afraid to you know to. To think outside the box and break the moulds, uh, and uh, I like it. I mean, I'm not. I'm not sure it's still not a hundred percent popular with a hundred percent of the of the Brighton crowd. But uh, I think with those, you know, those people who've followed it for a long time, we can't believe our luck in, uh, or we can't believe Tony Bloom's uh, still in, in finding Graham Potter as a, as a manager.
0: And it suits Brighton, the city, which is one of my favourite cities, along with Edinburgh. I think a close second is Brighton because every time I've been. Whether to watch the football or to see some shows at the fringe or uh as uh, when I did in twenty nineteen I saw Richard, my brother, complete the half marathon. I surprised him. I don't know if the Brighton half is taking place just before uh, the it, London it, Marathon, has it been?
1: It was it would have been, um, on the weekend of July the fourth, but was in, in the end was no, uh I think it would have been the last weekend in May, but in the end it was in it was off office year.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'll certainly go down next year. Rich tends to run half marathons. I think he'd be very interested in this book, Pulp Football. Uh, As well as Brighton up, um, I've been saying for the last few weeks, Brentford are going to be everyone's second team, but Brighton has been everyone's second team. The only problem with Brighton at the moment is that there are grumbles about Neil Mopay. Is this just a trouble-in-paradise excuse? Or do you, despite being an old-school journalist... Agree with all the stats that clearly show that Brighton create chances but don't convert them. Well, you can't you
1: can't disagree with that. I mean, if you follow you know the, if you believe in the you know the expected goals um, stat, then uh, you know Brighton in theory would have been sixth at the end of last season in, because of uh, the number of chances created but, but not taken. But also that you know they 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 drastically cut down on the number of chances allowed. Um, last season after uh, changing goalkeepers Uh, I think one of the stats that Graham Potter would have looked at would have been the the, um, x goals allowed and shots were going past Matty Ryan that really shouldn't have gone past him and when he put um, Big Bob Sanchez in that
0: Is it because he can't like believe his luck? Because he's come from absolutely... Was it Rochdale or somewhere? No,
1: he was, he'd been at the Brighton Youth for a long time. Yeah, I'd seen him a couple of weeks uh, before his, his debut at Tottenham. I'd seen him in the under-23s, and he was doing sort of Pat Jennings stuff, just sort of ambling out, catching the ball one-handed. He's been... I know Glenn Murray um, spoke a, a lot about how, you know, when they first saw him in training... During the Euros, well, they uh, they call him the Panther in, in in Spain the Spain squad. So, no, he's um he's he's the real deal. I mean, he's still very young, and I'm, he's going to go through patches where it, nothing goes right for him, and he makes mistakes because all young goalkeepers do. You know, you can think of plenty of young goalkeepers who came you know came on the scene like Mervyn Day. Uh, you know, and you see said oh England's goalkeeper for the next 15 years, and then you know he just had a confidence crisis and was dropped for, for, you know, half a season. So, so that'll happen. Um, but go back to Mopé, yeah, I mean, Brighton found ways of, of missing goals that, you know, were almost incredible last season. and uh, uh, Not just Mopé, uh, Connolly. And, and there was a, uh, the, the number of goals that came from midfield was, was drastically oh, well, some yeah. I mean, Someone like Pascal Gross, who normally weigh in with about five a season, he scored three last season, all three were penalties. So Pascal mm. Gross didn't score a goal in free play uh, Bissuma I think got one. Lalana got one. You know, these are guys who know where the goals are. Uh, Sonny March, I think two or three. So you know, I think it was a collective failing. But there was another stat that that I uh, found. Well, I think I had found for me it was it was an impression I'd had. And I mentioned it on a Brighton uh, fan site, and somebody came up with the stat that you know they 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 pass it forward, and you know that that's, it's great to watch. But sometimes you know it it's it doesn't it doesn't go far forward fast enough, and teams have a chance to get back and um I think when Brighton players had a shot, there was an average of over three defenders between them and the goal, and that's the highest in the Premier League, and they also had the highest number of shots blocked in the Premier League. so the, when the ball finally gets forward to uh, and a shot or wherever a goal happens, lots of defenders are back, and I think they need to get the ball forward a bit quicker, uh, and I think the two goals they scored at Burnley. On Saturday, we were both examples of that. You know, ball ball out wide, first time cross, uh, and they they scored a goal in a friendly at Luton. You will be glad to hear, mm-hmm. uh, as a Watford fan, um, which was similar. You know, first, ball out to the white first time cross in, uh, and first time shot. So I think they may have taken that on board. Both I think most most people enjoy for his um, his work ethic and we um, say his aggressive attitude on the on the pitch. He doesn't take any. Any messing around from opponents. But Even when he's not scoring, he does contribute. I mean, the the, the goal that Danny Welbeck scored against Leeds last season, you know, when he did a um, a croy turn on a dropping ball and before slotting it past him, if that ball, that goal wouldn't have happened if Mope hadn't been worrying the of defenders and forcing them into a bad yeah. clearance.
0: It's, so, it's the Emil Heskey method of playing football. Just because well, you don't score goals, you can have an effectivity
1: he oh, can affect. Yeah, I mean, he's always affecting the game. I mean, I, you know, he'd be a nightmare to, to play against if you were a defender because he's always sort of snapping at you and uh, making life uh, unpleasant. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, just, I think people, you know, think that obviously, you know, it would be nice if he could score some of the open goals that he that he misses. But uh, you know, he's he's He contributes in every game. I don't think there's a game where you know he's off the pace and just moaning at people. No, he'll be uh, he'll be foraging and uh, and, and trying to cause a nuisance wherever he
0: is well he'll get nothing against William Trost Ekong um, the, the super eagle at the back for Watford uh, the game is on uh, Sky isn't it at half five I'm not going I, so. um, I don't are you going to the game either professionally I have no idea, or... that, no, idea. Wow. no idea it
1: depends, it depends where, I'm, where I'm sent this weekend what so a life that, you know, um, we will... I, don't, I don't have any choice in the matter.
0: Yeah, we. Um, yeah, let's discuss that now. You, you, are, you work in what I think is my dream job, which is a freelance football journalist. But of course, that means you don't know where you are deployed at the start of each week. And you apparently have to go to press conferences and get the write-ups and sit in the press box. Is it a bit of a drag now? Or is it because, as you said yeah. at the top, you have to write your reports because Shad Khan doesn't like paying stewards to... Sit over you.
1: It was a difficult season last season. I mean, in, in some ways better because the pre-match press conferences were all done on Zoom. Yeah. Now the, the downside of that of course is you don't get to see all your chums from other papers and, and share all the gossip You know, which, which is usually involved in hanging around for half an hour before a press conference actually happens. But on the, on the plus side you didn't have to get up at nine o'clock to get to, to Tottenham for, for half past twelve or to West Ham for one o'clock or you know, to to Fulham for for one o'clock. So essentially, you could just get up five minutes before the Zoom call started, and you could do two or three press conferences a day if you, if, if, if that was necessary. So you know, there were good things and bad things about that. But you know, sitting in an, in an empty uh, football stadium, um, you know, sort of socially distancing, and then having to to wait for another Zoom post-match press conference rather than uh, you know being in a room where you can actually sort of chat to a Human being and not being, not having any access to players, that was that was pretty unpleasant and uh, just not what you go into the into the job for. And just having two thousand fans back in in uh, Vicarage Road for I'm trying to think what game it was. Uh, oh, was the it Cardiff, Cardiff
0: game when Cardiff, uh, yes. the fans booed the manager to such an extent that the potzos pulled the trigger and shot him out of the ejector seat yeah. a week later.
1: But, yeah, but uh, but you know, even two thousand fans in Vicarage Road, you know, the difference between. Zero and two thousand is so much bigger than the difference in two thousand and you know twenty eight mm. uh, thousand. It, it's because by by definition they're the most enthusiastic fans, uh, you know, as as away fans are. But um, no, it was it was a, a, a great experience, you know, because I've been at the Luton game um, at Vickery Drive as well. And you think, you know, how how disappointing it is for for that that fixture of all fixtures to be played in front of. Uh, an empty, an empty stadium, and you and, saw the uh, difference.
0: Just last weekend, you had Manu against Leeds United. Terrified Leeds, and it was because there were eighty thousand people there.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some grounds I swear, which are more intimidating than others. You know, I mean, I think there are some grounds that the teams go and they don't, they don't particularly feel feel the pressure of um, of the crowd. I mean, you know, the places like um, the Emirates. You know, if the team keeps Arsenal quiet for twenty minutes and waits for the, the crowd to start moaning and. Yeah. Snoring, then, then that can work in their favour, but um, there are other grounds, you know, where uh, yeah, it, it's much more of a much more intimidating for the visiting team. And I suppose for for a few, you know, players who've come up, you know, and sort of made debuts and things in in, a, in quiet stadiums last year, this will be a, a complete and utter culture shock. Or also for for in players who've come from quieter leagues uh, abroad. Um, you know that that might be might be the same. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a different. Uh, you know, what we, well, we see that that will presumably be more home wins than there were last year. You know, the last year the year of the away win.
0: Nick Shapanic, very easy to spell. E Panic with a K. Uh, whose byline I know from the Times. You were there for 14 years. I heard you often with Ollie Kay, who now writes for some venture capitalist backed. Godzilla yeah, website. football journal website. Yes, he's on a paywalled website. <laughs> yeah. um, do, you t- do you still speak to him? Do you still see him about? Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, Ollie's a good guy, and you know, if, if I need to call him, you know, anytime, no problem. He's always very affable, and uh, no, I enjoyed uh, doing the um, doing the title of the game podcast with Mister Narcotti and uh, and uh, Phil Jupiter and various other. Rotating regulars. Yeah. I even had to present. I even had to present once when uh, when I think Gab was stranded in Italy and couldn't get back in time. So uh, I even assumed the uh, the mantle of uh, of the great man. No, Gab's a great uh, a great character and uh, a gifted rapper. I must say,
0: Ooh. you might not know that,
1: but we were, we're, we're sound checking the microphones occasionally. He gives a bit of uh, Public Enemy or uh, oh, no, Of
0: course, because he grew up there. He's Floridian.
1: Uh, I think he's from he, uh,
0: he's, he's from Philadelphia. And nowadays, there's a plethora of them. But at that time, I'm not sure if the Guardian Football Weekly even existed back in the mid-2000s. But um, the Times did really well. You had the Baddiel and Skinner World Cup podcast. And I think I turned into listening to the game, certainly when I was at university early on. Do, was it 2006, 2007? Yeah, yes, I
1: think it would have been right. Yeah, we used to, we used to uh, assemble in a a little studio uh, around the corner from Edgeware Road underground and uh, and then uh, head off to a, a, a local uh, a cafe for a, a sort of a post, post-game post debrief and chat and stuff and uh, no it was uh, yeah it was really good and that I mean leaving the times I mean was there were reasons why I wasn't too displeased to leave but that was that was something I missed doing that because uh, you know it was a great way to kick off a week you know with a bit of chat with some uh, you know very very and uh, intelligent people, and you came away feeling you knew more um, after you'd you'd had that uh, that experience than than, than when you went in.
0: And we should say, it is still going, the Game Podcast, but a shadow of its former self.
1: Allegedly, yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, And I read the Times every day. Uh, Obviously, it's changing because football knowledge happens on social media now. Everyone has seen the clips, but you've got Dicko and Henry and uh, James Geerbrandt, I think, is a superb journalist. I don't know how much longer he'll last at the Times. And then at The Guardian, I went to university with Johnny Lou, who is doing brilliant things uh, alongside Barney Rone. It's a kind of Juan Marlillo and Pep Guardiola situation there. They've got a super yeah, team. Yeah, Telegraph on had a
1: couple of rocky moments early on. They, Telegraph, uh, kept faith with him when, you know, when, he, when he was there. And uh, he got pilloried for... for a little bit of a spat with another journalist mm-hmm. um, but I think what he had to say was just, uh, honestly and very uh, forcefully and very wittily expressed and I've got a lot of time for him I think uh, he's written some fantastic stuff I mean he's also you know he's also been the, the butt of, of racism and all sorts of prejudice but uh, you know he stands up for himself and, and
0: more power to him I didn't know until he wrote about it recently that he was a father. That, that kid is going to learn quite a lot. Um, it's just a shame because I went to one school, Johnny was at a school a few miles away and when I found that out, I thought, well, of course, he's one of them. Um, but some, there are some good people at Haberdashers. You can't knock them at all. Um, I note that you were relaunching fantasy football. Is that soccer or gridiron football?
1: Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in a... Uh, a football fantasy league but I mean I, I, I play in I think four was it five fantasy baseball leagues that's my absolute fantasy passion fantasy baseball because there's so much of it you know 162 games yeah,
0: exactly season. who's going to win the World Series who should I put money on
1: well the Yankees are coming back aren't they people thought about the White Sox but it, it hasn't really happened so the Dodgers are always going to be going to be strong um, Dodgers-Yankees World Series if I had to is... But, I mean, but, you know, you don't know until the season starts. I mean, everyone thought, you know, the, the Twins were going to be good. It didn't happen. So, uh, Padres, whoever wins the, the National League out of the Padres and the uh, and the Dodgers will win the World Series. I think. Yeah,
0: this is the time I start uh, taking interest in, in an, I'm
1: also in an NFL fantasy league, which I kind of have to be with all my NFL connections. But um, no, I, I think I'm now an ex-NFL writer because the Times and Sunday Times... Sports merger meant that um, they, now the, the Sunday Times now get um, Charles Hall from the Times to write their NFL. So uh, I think I may have been to my last Super Bowl, but you know, fair enough. Fourteen Super Bowls wasn't uh,
0: wasn't a bad run. No, well, I know a guy who is in charge of the NFL's commercial department because I've spoken to David Tossel, uh, the prolific writer. In his spare time, he writes books. Uh, or is it the other way round? In his spare time, he runs well, the commercial exactly. side of the. No, NFL? No, he, and
1: he, is, he is prolific and a yeah. uh, good writer as well. But um, no, he's uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a dedicated Arsenal fan, and uh, and yet is capable of writing about other things. which Zing. you would which which yes.
0: you applaud? Uh, he's you quote him because uh, he's written a book about the '53 final.